0: Welcome to the Facts or What Matter podcast, where we discuss the lies, the myths, and the propaganda being promoted by the media and society. Let's all be informed, not uninformed, or even worse, misinformed. Here we go. Welcome to the Facts or What Matter. I'm Dave Swinford, your host. And today I'd like to welcome Francis, Francis Minton. Uh, he blogs at the uh, Manhattan Contrarian on energy, climate, and politics, among other things. Um, he's a retired lawyer turned, uh, let's say, contrarian who takes a, an interesting challenge, and his challenge to the world is, hey, let's see, let's actually see a renewable energy pilot program. So welcome to the podcast, Francis. Uh, thanks so much. Great to be here. Describe the challenges and the cost and some of those things that, that are associated with storing um, storing this renewable energy that we're going to create.
1: Sure. It, it starts with the very simple proposition that the renewable energy sources don't operate all the time and they don't operate at scheduled times either. So you don't really know when you're going to get that renewable energy. And I'm talking here about the wind and the sun. Uh, solar generators have remarkably low capacity factors. So if let's say you buy a, a set of solar panels, a big massive set of solar panels with a 1,000 megawatt uh, capacity, or that would be one gigawatt, right, a billion watt capacity, which means if it's noon on June 21, and there's not a cloud in the sky, and the sun is beating right down on them, they're going to generate for you uh, one gigawatt worth of power. Now you have those for a year. There's 8,760 Hours in a year, so if the sun was shining full strength all the time, you'd get eight thousand seven hundred and sixty gigawatt hours out of that plant, out of that facility. Well, it turns out that the average capacity factors of solar facilities is in the range of twenty twenty percent, and so that so that means that instead of getting eight thousand seven hundred and sixty uh, Gigawatt hours out of this plant, you're going to get more like a 2200. If you had a one gigawatt nuclear plant, you could get very close to 8,760 gigawatt hours out of it in a year, particularly if it's a year without a refueling. And some and nuclear plants can go more than a year without a refueling. If you have a refueling, you have to shut it down. So maybe you get 7,000 and something gigawatt hours that year from the nuclear plant and from a solar plant you're only going to get 2200 and you're not going to get any of it at night and and cloudy days it goes way down so what are you going to do about that well you could you could build some batteries you can build more you can build more solar facilities you can build some batteries how much batteries are you going to need to get yourself to through a year and now we're talking about a, a an a, a arithmetic calculation in other words how much do you have you have a whole um, city run on solar power how are you going to run it at night well batteries that's that's a start but you would think you you might start off from the proposition say well day is half the time night is half the time so uh, I'll put up the solar panels and I'll I'll get battery storage and and it'll be about a half and half proposition. But as I said, the solar panels really only produce about twenty twenty percent of the time. By the way, in cloudy and northern areas like England, they they produce more like twelve twelve percent. Ridiculous small amount. So then it's just a, a calculation by arithmetic of how much extra solar capacity and how much batteries are you going to need? Same thing for wind. wind. Wind turbines in good locations can have capacity factors up to 35 or 40%. I've never seen any that really get past that. But wind is worse than sun. At least with sun, you know that most of the time during the day, you're going to have some power. Wind, you could have a calm that goes on for a week. No wind at all. Then the next week you'll have full strength for the whole week. Uh, Sometimes it goes up and down wildly during a day. So, so how much battery storage do you need to get through these random times for wind, or all the nights and the winter long nights with sun? It's just a, a a calculation using arithmetic that that you can do. It's a It's not a complicated calculation, but it's a detailed calculation in the sense that to get it right, you have to do it hour by hour through a year. So you're talking about at least 8,760 data points to get through a year, and you got to collect all that data. And you'd probably be smart to use a spreadsheet program instead of trying to do it by hand, (laughs) but you could do it by hand. And uh, and and you come up with numbers. When you do that, you find out the numbers are enormous. The the amount of storage you need is is completely beyond what you could ever possibly uh, buy or acquire. I, I was
0: gonna, well, uh, no go ahead. I was just going to say it seems to me like nobody ever takes into account the size of those how much what the size of that is and the environmental impacts of. Of of that, right? Of either making batteries or getting rid of batteries, or just the sheer fact that batteries that large are there's a, there's a safety factor too, right?
1: Well, there is a safety factor which is very much underreported and little known. That well, you come to the question of what, what is the technology you're going to use for batteries. There are many different technologies. However, it turns out that based on the current state of technology, far and away the best one to use, which doesn't mean it's any good, but it's better than the others because it's cheaper and somewhat lighter, which again doesn't mean it's light, but uh, is what's called lithium ion. And that's the fancy kinds of batteries that you find in your cell phone and you find in a Tesla and in your computer. And they've made some remarkable advances in these batteries, but not anything to really make them terribly useful for the grid. But a lithium ion battery is the kind that has that is now known for suddenly exploding and catching fire. You 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 might have seen a picture of um, some buses that were parked in a parking lot in China, like a row of six of them. And one of them suddenly explodes into fire, and then the fire spreads down to the other six buses and consumes them all. Uh, Or you might well have uh, uh, read about or seen on TV that there was a huge ship carrying high-end cars like BMWs and Audis and Porsches. From Germany to the United States, it had like half a billion dollars worth of cars, and uh, but there were electric cars in there, and because Audi and BMW make them now, and somewhere on that ship, some of these one probably started with one exploded into flames, and the whole ship went down, and they had to rescue the crew, (laughs) and they lost half a billion dollars worth of cars, um, and. I don't know that these fires are that common, that, that they can be extremely destructive. There was one in California in a grid energy backup thing, newly acquired using Tesla batteries just last week. Now, the one in California, it was a gigantic battery farm. And by gigantic, it's gigantic in terms of if you looked at it, you'd say that's a gigantic battery farm. In In terms of what would actually be needed to back up the grid, if there were no fossil fuel generators or nuclear plants, it's completely trivial. But but it was uh, gigantic. It's on the order of a, a, a two hundred and fifty megawatt.
0: That's, um, that's not much, though, is it? <laughs> 250. Well, two
1: hundred and fifty megawatts, and it, and it's good for about four hours. So let let's call it one gigawatt hour of storage in this plant. If you looked at right. it, it's a gigantic thing. But to b- fully back up the California grid, if you got rid of all the fossil fuel generators, would take more like 30,000 gigawatt hours of storage. So this is one, <laughs> one gigawatt hour of storage compared to a need for 30,000. It's a tiny fraction of 1% of what they would need. However, th- somebody thinks it's a good idea to build these things at enormous cost, and, and, one of the battery packs in it, and it had dozens of dozens of these gigantic Tesla mega battery packs. One of them caught fire. Now the good news for them is it did not spread to all the others and wipe the whole planet. It just destroyed this one thing that was maybe uh, one out of fifty in the in the plant.
0: So, is there anything other than batteries? I mean, I've heard talk of like pump storage, compress compressing gas. You know, there's the liquid. liquefied salt or something like that. I mean, any of those things, anything else that has any chance of being applicable?
1: Yeah, pump storage, uh, you know, if, if you can do it, it's the best of them. But the trouble with pump storage is you need to have a place where you can pump an enormous amount of water Uphill, a pretty far distance. Like then you got to get it up a thousand or two feet to be meaningful, and and then it has it, 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 There has to be another equal-sized reservoir down at the bottom of the hill, right? Where you can keep it to put the pump it back up again. They're, and and these places don't really exist. So they talk about a lot of things, but uh, the 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 one that's closest to real is hydrogen.
0: Um, that sounds that sounds uh, dangerous.
1: <laughs> well, we all know of the of the Hindenburg disaster. Have you seen that film?
0: Oh yeah. Oh Where, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, pretty much everybody has seen the film oh, of yeah. the Hindenburg blowing blowing up. A- and uh, yes, hydrogen is dangerous. Uh, you might say natural gas is dangerous, which is which is really what we use now and hi- hydrogen could kind of slip into the existing natural gas system, not comfortably. GE, which makes turbines for natural gas power plant, actually now is advertising that it will sell you. I don't know if they've, if they've actually sold anybody one, but they're, they say they have, they're willing to sell, to make and sell. Uh, a version of their standard natural gas turbines that's somewhat modified so it can burn hydrogen. And, and if it burns hydrogen, it would get pretty much the exact same energy output as if you burned natural gas. That makes hydrogen possible. That, now you've got a, now you've got a number of questions to answer, like where are you going to get the hydrogen and how are you going to get it to the power plant? From where you make it and how much does it cost to make it, right? You have a whole series of complicated questions. And as you point out, hydrogen is, it, uh, let's say, poses a lot of challenges for transportation, storage, et cetera, because compared to natural gas, it's more volatile, it's more subject to explosion, it's more difficult to contain, it's a tiny, tiny little molecule. So, so it can leak out of just about anything, and any any leak could turn into an explosion. But nobody has a really good measure of how – because there are natural gas explosions too pretty regularly, right? We're all familiar with that. So, But nobody has a really good measure of how much more dangerous is hydrogen than natural gas because there isn't enough usage of it to get a handle on that.
0: And when we saw the Hindenburg, <laughs> I think the whole thought of using hydrogen kind of scared everybody for a for a century. So,
1: if you get a um, big reservoir of hydrogen, like the tiniest little spark in the presence of oxygen, and oxygen is everywhere, turns into an explosion. The thing, now natural gas can explode, but it's a funny thing. I don't know if you know about natural gas, but if natural gas actually gets up to more than a certain percent of the air, which is around between 10 and 20 percent, I don't know the exact number, but if natural gas actually gets up to that number, it, it it's not so explosive anymore. And and that means if you may, if you can find like a salt cavern or something or a or an underground facility and pump it full of natural gas where it doesn't have to be 100% pure natural gas some some air can get in there and it's not too dangerous not so with hydrogen now people say they have solutions to these things but again nobody has ever tried it on a big scale because hydrogen is so expensive to make
0: hydrogen is so expensive to get and you just take water and bust it up into oxygen and hydrogen and two separate components you can something. do that
1: you can uh, i mean you can absolutely do that uh with enough money and enough energy
0: right it takes a lot it, of energy fact, to do that
1: <laughs> it takes a lot of energy to do that so so first of all the cheapest way to make hydrogen today i mean th- it, there's plenty of hydrogen in the world. It's just all combined with something, right? So the hydrogen is either in uh, water or it's in basically organic molecules, hydrocarbons and carbohydrates. And when you hear the uh, word hydro, that's telling you there's hydrogen in there. So hydrocarbons, is as all, all the fossil fuels, they all are made of carbon and hydrogen, and carbohydrates, so all like living things, like plants and vegetation, uh, has hydrogen in it. So, and, so how do you? But how do you separate the hydrogen out? Well, it turns out the cheapest way, that requires the least input of energy to get hydrogen, is to start with natural gas. Natural gas being methane, it's a carbohydrate, carbon and hydrogen, and and there's a process called steam reformation where you basically boil steam through it and it separates the the uh, carbon from the hydrogen. So you get hydrogen. Well, it, it, it turns out this is completely unacceptable to uh, the environmentalists and the uh, – it's uh, completely unacceptable because what? Because where does the carbon go? It, it goes off into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. <laughs> So it represents no savings whatsoever in the so-called carbon emissions that everybody is obsessing about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it seems seems to me – So that won't work. You know, (laughs) if you have this – if you have – you have to have excess capacity on whatever it is, windmills, uh, solar cells, whatever. Not only do you have to have the excess capacity to make it because whatever, but you need to have an excess capacity to – whatever you're going to do charge batteries fill reservoirs make hydrogen you have to have enough excess capacity that you can do that faster than the time that you, or as fast as the time you linked the time you need to reload right so if it, if you're going to have a week's worth of storage you know you know 2 or 3 days later you may need another day or two right so you can't like it can't take you 6 months to go build this week's worth of energy so the whole thing just seems broken to me so
1: well and and again you're kind of doing some quick and dirty math in your head there uh, which i think is completely appropriate but the the actual specific detailed math that you need to calculate how much hydrogen you actually need to make and how much extra solar cells you need is again a, a matter of simple arithmetic that you can just sit down with a, a, a piece of paper, <laughs> pen, or you can get out a spreadsheet and you can do the arithmetic and you can figure out what you need. Now I actually have written, but it's not published yet, a paper on energy storage for a group I'm on the board of called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, and that paper is going to be out in a few weeks. And in that paper, I have some actual mathematical calculations stuff you would need to make enough hydrogen to make a uh, energy system that'll get you through a year. Now this would be, now I'm talking about not getting it from natural gas because you can get it from natural gas, but that does. If, if if you think your problem is carbon emissions, that does not solve it or even begin to solve it. So the only acceptable place where you can get a sufficient quantity of hydrogen is water. And in fact, you can't even get a, a sufficient quantity of hydrogen to to be the storage mechanism for the world electricity system from fresh water. You've got to get it from the ocean. So you've got to start electrolyzing the ocean on a massive, massive scale. And, and if you do that with solar panels, you have to realize that the solar panels only get 20% capacity factor. And and then when you burn the hydrogen back in um, in a power plant, you only get about a thirty percent efficiency in that process. So between twenty percent capacity factor from the solar panels. Uh, only thirty percent efficiency. That's uh, basically one fifth times one third. So it, you get back about one fifteenth of the energy you put into the process. <laughs> so if you, for a year's worth, you're only going to get back one fifteenth of that uh, in the hydrogen uh, on the other side of the process. So, so that- uh, which means which uh, you can, from that you can get an idea of the enormous cost here.
0: So it, it seems to me the way, especially in the financial industry, because I see, I've read this Lazard's analysis or whatever, This I guess it's a hedge fund that puts this this thing out. And they, they talk about the levelized cost of energy, right? And so they put in there... Yeah, they, I would call
1: Lazard an investment bank rather than a hedge fund, but okay, yeah. they have
0: hedge fundy aspects to them. Right. So, I mean, that, so they do these analysis and they have these metrics in there and they talk about capacity factor and... It just seems like uh, you know you can you can twist those metrics to make them come out however you want to make it. I, I always call it uh, lying with data. <laughs> you know you. Can, well, you, I, I guess
1: so, and that, that's that's there. You can call it lying with data, but you, you what what you need when you read them is a skeptical eye and a little bit of basic knowledge of numbers and arithmetic, and and you can see through almost all of this stuff without too much trouble. The problem is that most people's minds don't really work that way and they don't see through things too quickly. But, you know, you, you and I are of of a different uh, sort. So,
0: so one of the ones I didn't see in there, which I think is uh, would be an interesting one would be something like megawatts per acre, right? Because nobody really talks about what is the opportunity cost. So I'm going to go in there and I'm going to, put in, for instance, in my area, Facebook is putting in a big uh, a big facility. And so they sponsored a solar array up in Lincoln County, Tennessee, and it's on a thousand acres. And uh, mm-hmm. it probably puts out, I'm assuming eight, eight acres per megawatt, probably puts out 125 megawatts across this thousand acres. Now, mm-hmm. I compare that to Just down the road, we have the second largest nuclear plant in the country. It's on 840 acres, and actually it could be less than that because they're not using all that, but uh, it's been in operation since 1973, and it generates like somewhere between 3.4 and 3.8 gigawatts of electricity. So 3.8 gigawatts on 840 acres versus 125 megawatts on 1,000 acres of, by the way, that's prime farmland where they put that. So you know there's there's that that's something that's never really mentioned a whole lot when they when they do these uh, analysis well and costs. and
1: and even that doesn't seem like I, I, I would have thought the comparison is far worse and i i think you got to you haven't even taken in the 20% capacity factor no i didn't no i didn't that so, was
0: just that was just <clears throat> yeah
1: because 120 125 megawatts that's
0: that was just a rough. I, I grabbed one, that number one
1: eight one eighth right, right? one eighth right. of a uh, of a gigawatt. So so the uh, the solar panel generates about one thirtieth as much as that nuclear plant on roughly the same acreage. If the sun is shining, oh, if you got to multiply sun. it by another factor of five. So it's really one one hundred and fiftieth. Right. Right so it's it's a it's a it's a fraction of one percent it's like point point six of one percent as much as the nuclear plant on the same acreage or another way of putting it is you have to make it, you have to get something like seventy times as much acreage to make the same amount of electricity and you only get it during the day. If you want electricity at night, tough shit. You're not getting that. Right.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I did a I did an analysis and on this another podcast and trying to figure out how much, how much, how many, how many nuclear plants would it take to replace the just the gasoline, not diesel fuel, not just gasoline for cars. If we all went to all electric cars, and I. Probably left out some of the losses, but I just came to a rough calculation that we would need 192 new nuclear plants in the next between now and 2050 to replace the energy. And if, and if you add for some growth, say call it just round it up to 200, 200 nuclear plants new between now and 2050 to replace just the gasoline that we use in our cars, to to go over to all electric cars. That's not talking about houses or diesel trucks or anything else just yeah well i
1: I, i'm not even saying that would be a terrible solution to the problem that that might be an acceptable solution to the problem if you thought that carbon emissions were such a terrible thing which i don't but if you did that wouldn't be such a terrible solution to the problem but you'd have to be on a crash program of building these nuclear plants absolutely as fast as possible Right now, and it turns out that there there isn't a single nuclear plant under construction in the whole United States. I think there might be one.
0: No, I think uh, I think it got finished, and, and there's no not a single one right now. <laughs> I think that one yeah. was in Georgia I mean, and it got finished. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so, so th- th- this this program doesn't exist. So it's it's all a total fantasy. Well, and I wanted to go back to the levelized cost of energy, which you had right. mentioned before as a metric that people put out and you mentioned the name of Lazard and Lazard is an investment bank that puts out an annual report on the levelized, what what they call the levelized cost of energy. And I don't know if you, how carefully you've looked into these things or studied them, but I've put some substantial effort into trying to understand them. And the first thing I would say is that the concept of levelization is not nuts. Uh, So in that sense, they've got something uh, to hang their hat on as as we're doing a real exercise that people ought to do. So what is levelization? Levelization simply means that each different type of um, way of generating electricity requires investment on a different uh, time pattern. And in order to compare them on an apples-to-apples basis, you therefore have to put the expenditures to generate the energy. You have to allocate those to time periods going over a 10- or 20-year lifetime of the thing and discount them all with a discount rate back to present value in order to get a comparison. So that a nuclear plant has a tremendous upfront cost and very little cost of fuel, but a natural gas plant has a much lower upfront cost and a much higher cost of fuel, so the the costs of a natural gas plant are much farther in the future, and the nuclear ones are now. And to compare them, you need to put those all those costs in time periods and discount them to the present. And that process is called levelization. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. That's legitimate. But when Lazard does that for solar and wind to calculate a levelized cost of electricity from solar and wind, they leave out the cost of storage. And the cost of storage is the dominant cost of generating reliable electricity from solar and wind. So they leave out most of the cost. And it's not it's not like they left out even 50% or 60%. It's like they left out ninety percent or ninety-five percent of the cost of generating electricity from solar and wind. So When you read their reports on levelization, it's full of all kinds of technical terms and complicated models and charts and to snow you with what sophisticated stuff they're doing, all of which is like the magician trying to distract you from the (laughs) fact that he just left out most of the (laughs) costs.
0: And 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 it's not a real comparison at all. And many times, because I've I've done these kinds of studies, you know, and and many times – the The assumptions going into those things basically drives the whole thing, right? So, if you assume that you have X many sunny days, then it looks really good. If you assume that you have um, such certain certain costs to uh, decommission a nuclear plant, and you and the nuclear plants are only good for twenty years, well, that would be that would be a significant driver. Well, like I said, the Brown's Ferry plant has been in it's been in production for fifty years almost. So, you know, if you had assumed and, and
1: there's probably no talk of closing it either, right? It probably could go
0: for another fifty. Years. It's 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 licensed through another fifteen years, right? So they do that every ten or fifteen years. They they renew it. So yep. yeah, there's no there's no talk about dismantling it. So if you had gone into that equation and said okay, this nuclear plant's only good for 20 years and it's got to be decommissioned and tearing that down and cleaning it up and whatever is a significant cost, well, then that's a a significant assumption that is probably wrong that drives the whole study. The whole study. So, you know, I mean, we do this. uh, I've, I've done these things where we model lasers versus guns, right? So if you say, hey, lasers are cheap, all we got to have is electricity they shoot everything down guns are expensive and you got to all this equipment you know well then you don't account for the fact that the lasers don't work when it's raining (laughs) the lasers don't work when it's cloudy right i mean so you have those kinds of things you have to account for and and i've going through that lizards it is very it is very technical and very um it's very difficult to go through even for someone that's technically oriented you can. You have to read the footnotes. If you don't read the footnotes, you won't really understand where they're hiding the, hiding the stuff. So.
1: Well, I, I, okay, but I'm I'm making the point to you that it's not you don't have to understand all the technical details. Of,
0: oh yeah, I agree.
1: Which, which in the Lazard reports is all about how we allocated costs to time period and right. how we discounted it back to the present. You don't have to understand all those technicalities. To figure out that they've left out the dominant cost of the Oh yeah, system oh yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And the technical yeah. stuff is all there to snow you and to distract you from the fact that they've left out the dominant cost in order to make wind and solar appear cheaper. And and I, all you have to understand is that if you're if you are willing to only have electricity. Uh, during the daylight hours on a sunny day and the rest of the time you just have to do without solar actually is cheap. Oh yeah oh, if yeah. you're not willing to live if you're not willing to live in that world then solar is far far more expensive than fossil fuels and
0: and that, that kind of takes us to one of your other assertions is hey let's 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 see you prove it let's just see you prove it let's have a pilot program let's stand up someplace and prove that we can just go 100 percent renewable energy. The,
1: to the, me, that is the most remarkable thing about this whole, this whole renewable renewable energy net zero phenomenon, is that nobody is even trying that, and nobody concedes a, a need to do it. They're, they're just making the entire world the guinea pig for the pilot project, and in a situation where everybody who can do arithmetic can figure out it's not going to work, right. but. Uh, maybe that's why they don't want to do the pilot project. I mean it must be why.
0: I mean you get you get Texas that's on their own grid, you know, and they have they have a big commitment to wind up in the north part of the state. In the south part of the state, they have coastal, they have they should be able to have you know I mean so you have a big a big range, right? So you should be able to get wind on either the either in the plains to the north or the coast to the south. You should be able to get solar you know because it's in you know it's it's especially to the north side of the state it's more deserty and the west side more desert than the east so you got this huge laboratory you could use and then go try it and of course we all know they failed they failed in february of 21 when they had an ice storm come through and basically were without without power for like two weeks into in dallas
1: well, I I don't agree with you that the pilot project should involve 30 million people. I I <laughs> you're I, I, right, sorry, it should be But smart. I think they ought to, they ought to do a pilot project for for at most 100,000 people or 50,000. Right. To show that this works and and the people ought to ought to volunteer for it instead of uh, being uh dragooned into it kicking and screaming. And and facing blackouts involuntarily and 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 suddenly soaring costs involuntarily, if if you it ought to be a voluntary program for people who agree to it and and show us that this can work. Right. There's there's not it it's it is completely remarkable to me that there is nothing in the world remotely close to a pilot or demonstration program of a net zero that is no carbon emission uh, uh, system using wind and solar and storage of any kind to back it up. It it does not exist, but it's worse than it doesn't exist because there are several, well, there's at least a couple. There there are some other tiny ones. Uh, the, The two best known are called El Hierro in Spain and King Island in Australia. Uh, there is another one called Gapa Island in Korea, which I think there's only there's less than 200 people live on that island. King Island is about 1,500. El Hierro is 10,000. So El Hierro is kind of real. And when it was built, and it opened, I believe in 2014, uh, it was touted as this is going to be the first demonstration that you can do uh, wind plus storage for 100% of your electricity. They never got rid of the diesel, thank God. they have a, they, So they have a backup diesel generator for the island. And the thing opened in 2014, I think 2015 was the first year it opened, but they're, it, they're definitely you can go find reports from the newspapers at the time that said this is gonna show how zero carbon emissions system can work. But they have never, ever gotten close. Um, there's no solar panels involved. It's just wind turbines. But they have wind turbines that have a capacity factor, which is on the order of double average usage and well more than peak usage, like one and a half times peak usage and double average usage. And then they have a big water storage reservoir. So it's not batteries. It's a w- pumped, They pump the water uphill, and they have a volcanic crater that they lined with concrete. And uh, they pump the water up into that using the wind turbines. So if it's windy at night, uh, the usage is low. They pump a lot of water uphill, and it goes back down when the winds are calm. And uh, so, so why doesn't it work? Uh, And I I should tell you that the I, I said that the capacity of the wind turbines is double average usage. The capacity of the uh water generator, the hydro generator, when the water system is turned on and the water is going back downhill, is also double average usage. Wow. Um, so you would think, why, why doesn't this work? But if you could do a little arithmetic, it doesn't take very long to figure out why it doesn't work. And the, reason, the the main reason is that the water storage reservoir isn't nearly big enough it, because it, the question of how much storage you need is not a question of the <coughs> watts of capacity. It's a question of the watt hours right. of usage that you have stored in the reservoir. And they don't have nearly enough. So when the wind stops blowing, the reservoir empties out in a few hours and they're stuck. <laughs>
0: crank the diesel generators
1: <laughs> crank up the diesel generators and then so somebody and, and you would think this is this is a project of the government of Spain backed by the government of Spain and by the way they don't charge nearly to the ratepayers in El Hierro what the system costs right it's subsidized by the government of Spain and And there's a utility and there's engineers who work for that utility. And you think, can these people do the arithmetic to to figure out how big a reservoir you're going to need to make this thing work so you can get rid of the diesel generators? As far as I can see, they never, ever did that arithmetic. I can't even find it. So who has ever done it? Oh, some retired engineer who lived in Mexico named Roger Andrews got out a spreadsheet and did the calculations and he figured out that in order to make this thing get be able to get through a year without turning on the diesel generator, they'd have to have a forty times bigger reservoir. Forty times bigger. And it's not a complicated calculation. It's, Anybody could do it.
0: It's the kind of stuff that you would literally get <laughs> you would literally get that on a final exam as just one of your little problems in in, you know, some kind of class in college, at least for an engineer, right? It's a really simple For thing. For an
1: engineer, I would think you would. It's it's just a matter of arithmetic. I mean, you need some fairly detailed data. You need like hour by hour data of how the wind blows. It turns out in El Hierro the wind blows very strongly in the summer and not so much in the winter. Uh, and 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 so so their system some some months can get 80% of its uh electricity from the wind and the water. But other months it's twenty percent, and over the course of the year it's only about half. But but to to get up to a hundred percent would take a forty times bigger reservoir. Well, where are they going to put it? They only have this one mountain. Is, right? yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they don't have forty more of those mountains, and and the whole rest of the world doesn't have any. Almost there are some, but there's almost no geographical
0: place that has configurations all configurations, formations. Yeah right
1: that are that are relevant to the vast vast quantities of water you'd have to pump uphill to make a water storage system to back up the entire world electricity system
0: you're going to you're going to build it, it a mountain in exist. kansas to you can build a giant mountain in kansas so that you can have this pump stored? no
1: <laughs> that's exactly right are you going to build a giant mountain in kansas and here's something i bet you don't know this but this is actually an interesting thing in uh, in New York State, uh, they, there is a mountain called Storm King Mountain, and and it's quite a spectacular geographical formation. It, it's right on the Hudson River, and it's and the Hudson River you may be aware is not really a river; it's a tidal estuary going pretty far up the river. And Storm King Mountain is about. Between forty and fifty miles north of New York City, and, and it's it has a, it's a cliff that goes right up from the water. Uh, when Con Edison, the the electric utility, beat built the Indian Point nuclear plant, which is right across the river, a couple of miles down, uh, uh, in that area, they had the brilliant idea that a pump storage facility would be a great thing to pair with a nuclear plant. It's actually a very smart idea because that way they could just run the nuclear plant flat out all the time and pump water uphill at night and effectively close to double the capacity of the power plant. So, so they, they had the idea, they were going to build a pump storage reservoir on the top of storm King Mountain, which would require like blasting the top off it. And, uh, um, and building a big reservoir up there, but it, it had pluses and minuses. But in, in terms of in terms of carbon-free energy, it was a pretty uh, clever idea. Well, you won't be surprised. And this happened in the 1960s. The, the a, a group of environmentalists called it formed a ad hoc group called Scenic Hudson to attack and challenge this uh, pump storage thing on the top of. Storm King Mountain, and uh, they were successful. But not only were they successful, the, the, the environmentalists blocked it. The, the case called Scenic Hudson is a famous case in environmental circles because that is the case that established the right of environmental groups to challenge uh, infrastructure projects. So, so that right, the right of environmental groups to challenge infrastructure projects on the ground that we are going to be harmed by the destruction of our natural environment, uh, it actually arose in the context of blocking a pump storage reservoir in one of the very few appropriate sites to build one of such things in the United States.
0: Wow, how about that? All right then. So <laughs> you've convinced me. I don't there's no there's no good way to store I'm convinced it. you, well audience, I hope you enjoy <laughs> this. <it. laughs> Francis, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your uh, insights. It's a pleasure. And uh I I and I look forward to maybe having you on again sometime and we'll 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 continue this.
1: Good. Get in touch and if I can do it, I will.
0: All right, thank you. So long now. Thanks for listening to the Facts for What Matter podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to catch our future episodes.